Well, so far this summer, we've been going through a, a sermon series called This is the Faith, uh, looking at what it means to believe and follow Jesus. Uh, and today we're starting a new series that's really more of a, a part two uh, to, to our, our first series in the summer called This is the Church. Um, and we're going to spend the rest of the summer looking at different metaphors and images in the Bible uh, that describe the people of God in the world. And, and today's concept that we're starting with is a big one. Steve decided to, to let me uh, handle the thing that Jesus talks about more than any other thing uh, in the entire Bible. Uh, 87 times in the Gospels, he talks about the kingdom of God. And Steve's like, you could do it in one message. So we're going to try. Um, but before we try, I'm going to pray. So uh, let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you uh, for your son. Thank you for your word. Um, and thank you for your kingdom. Um, I pray that your word would uh, shine through clearly, uh, despite uh, my shortcomings as a communicator. I pray that uh, what you want us to hear uh, would come through. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, the Bible talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. It means the same thing. Uh, the God, Matthew's gospel, he uses the kingdom of heaven. Uh, throughout the other uh, three gospels, it's called the kingdom of God, but it's the same. Um, 87 times uh, in, in the four Gospels. In fact, 85 of the 87 times are in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and so in, in the, those are called the Synoptic Gospels. Um, and Jesus talks about the kingdom more than any other thing uh, in the Gospels. The, the idea that the kingdom of God is near is the heart of the Gospel message. If, if, if anyone asks you, like, what is the good news? What is the Gospel? That is like kind of the, the short phrase that Jesus uses more than anything else. The kingdom of God is near. Um, that's the good news. That's the gospel. And, and I think it can be hard for us to understand what that means um, because kingdom language is very foreign to us. Uh, it, it, it maybe makes you think of a monarchy at, at some point in history um, that, that you know we're so proud that we broke away from, right? We don't want to go back to a kingdom. We just left one. We got out of that. Or maybe you think of stories of, of Camelot and King Arthur, something with you know, the knights of the round table uh, and, and, and you know, their, their, their chivalry uh, in, in their work for the kingdom. Or maybe like me, uh, you think about Disney World. I, I took my family to Disney World uh, this past March during spring break. Uh, and so when, when Steve gave me the topic for this message, I couldn't help but think about the Magic Kingdom um, down in Orlando. Uh, and the Magic Kingdom, honestly, is, it's an amazing experience. Everything is so clean, like ridiculously clean. And it's, it's so meticulously themed as you walk through the park. There's a system of tunnels that run underneath the entire Magic Kingdom. It's the, mag the part that you see is actually like the second story of the complex. And there's, there's tunnels that run under the whole park. And so you never see something that's out of place. You never see a character in the wrong area. You never see someone like changing out of a costume. That's all hidden. You never see anyone emptying trash. Um, that's an incredibly impressive logistical feat on its own, right? They have these tunnels that literally like suck trash through them at 60 miles an hour. I'm not making this up. Um, and, and, and you never have to see anyone emptying trash. It all happens underground. It just magically goes away. The garbage is just magically gone. Uh, and each night after the park closes, uh, people come out and start to paint. Um, a new section of the park every night gets painted, and they work their way from the front of the park all the way to the back of the park, repainting it, and when they finish at the back, they start over again. Um, and so the Magic Kingdom is constantly in a state of being repainted um, so that it always looks brand new and super clean and perfect. 
And there's music everywhere that's very intentional and specific. The paths and the landscaping are designed to to fit each area and move guests through the park. Um, They even pipe in specific smells to certain areas to make the experience authentic. Like if you're riding Pirates of the Caribbean, it smells like the sea. Uh, Or the Haunted Mansion has like a musty smell. That's on purpose. They bring those smells in. And they built everything, the castle and the buildings, they built it all with forced perspective. It makes them seem taller than they actually are in real life because the whole place is an elaborate, happy illusion to help you escape reality and forget about your problems for a while. As long as you don't spend too much time thinking about how much it costs. It's, it's a happy illusion. <laughs> and a big part of the experience at the Magic Kingdom is the way that you're treated as a guest. You are treated like a celebrity. From the moment you set foot on property, you are treated like a celebrity. The road down Main Street toward the castle is paved with red bricks. Um, Literally, Disney is rolling out the red carpet for you to to, to walk down. Cast members are happy to see you. They are happy to help you. They are happy to sell you things. And on our most recent visit, we we brought our five-year-old foster daughter, and she is obsessed with Elsa from Frozen. And the day we were going to meet Elsa and ride the Frozen ride, she wore her Elsa dress into the park. And every cast member, everyone who worked for Disney that we encountered treated her as if she was Queen Elsa. I mean, it was really amazing. They, you know, beyond just calling her Queen Elsa, like <laughs> she, she ate it up. They made her feel like the most important person in the whole world. And in return, she froze them all with her ice powers. <laughs> and, and they actually stayed still. They stayed frozen until we walked far enough away that she couldn't see them anymore. So like in her mind, she did it. She froze them. And every once in a while, she would like, she'd be like, oh, you can melt. And then they would like melt and it would be okay. Sometimes she didn't though. Sometimes she just left them frozen, like left a pile of frozen people in her wake. And it was amazing. And, and she, <laughs> she even tried to freeze Donald Duck. We, we met Donald Duck, and she, she, she was dressed as Elsa, and, I, you know, Donald doesn't talk. There's someone there that, like, it, kind of interprets, you know, what his elaborate hand gestures, right? And she met Donald, and the first thing she did was, like, like froze him, and he froze. Donald froze, and she, she told him that she froze his heart so he, she couldn't love Daisy anymore. So looking back, our Disney trip maybe was my foster daughter's uh, villain origin story, <laughs> actually. But, but they made her feel like a princess the whole time. She felt so incredibly special the whole time that we were there. And because Disney's like that. The Magic Kingdom um, is, is amazing, and it's this amazing illusion. And Disney's the kind of vacation that requires, like, another vacation when you get home. Like, you have to rest for a week when you get home because you're so exhausted. But my family keeps going back. Why? How can Disney appeal to my five-year-old, three teenagers, and to Sarah and I? Like, how can they do that? How can they, how can they appeal to everybody in my family? Why am I willing to spend hours and thousands of dollars just to visit Disney and then do it again every few years? What makes that kingdom magic? Well, I think it's the idea that there could be a perfect place in the world. It's the dream that there might, it might be possible for a place to exist where I don't have to be afraid, I don't have all these, I don't have all these worries, 
where, where everything is creative and fun and, and, and it's okay. And, and that just keeps us coming back to, to have a taste of that experience. The things that you see and hear and taste and smell at the Magic Kingdom, they're imaginary. Imaginary things that are somehow brought to life right in front of you. Somehow it's real. All the stuff that you watched in movies as a kid, somehow they find a way to make it real right in front of you. You can meet a princess. You can enter your favorite story on a, on a ride. You can taste food that you've only ever seen in a movie. And Main Street USA, the, the thing that you see when you first walk into the Magic Kingdom, it's a reimagined version of the small town that Walt Disney grew up in, but it's, but it's perfectly clean. And it's happy forever. It's an, it's an ideal world. With, without a fall, without brokenness, it's, it's Walt Disney's imagined perfect place. But it's fake. I, mean, I hate to break it to you. <laughs> it's not real. It's an amazing fake, but, but it's not real. The best that Disney can offer us is a, is a fantasy of a world that never really existed. It, it's a great place to visit, but you can't actually live there. You'd run out of money, <laughs> like, after a week, <laughs> It's fun to go there, but in the long run, we need more than just escape in our lives. It's fun to go have an escape for a while, but we can't live in an escape. We need more than that. We need a kingdom that has the power to actually change the world we live in. Not just somewhere we can go escape to, but something that can change everything around us. Something that can change ourselves. Something that can change us. And that's the good news of the gospel. That kingdom exists. John the Baptist announced that it was coming in Matthew 3, 2. It's the first reference to kingdom in, in Matthew's gospel. John says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And after Jesus went to John to be baptized and he went into the wilderness to be tested, he started preaching with the same message. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It sounds similar because it's exactly the same as what John said. And after he called his first disciples to follow him, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. This kingdom isn't magic. This kingdom is real. And so I want to spend some time this morning looking at what God's kingdom is not and what it is. Because, like I said earlier, I think the kingdom idea can be a little hard for us to grab onto. Um, and then I want to think about what does it mean for us today. And so first of all, the kingdom of heaven is not heaven. It's not the place where we call heaven. It's not the place uh, that, that we, we are going to spend eternity uh, without sin, without mourning or crying or pain with our Lord and Savior. The kingdom of heaven doesn't refer to someday we'll get to go to heaven. I know that can be confusing, um, but the kingdom of heaven isn't the place heaven. And Jesus is clear in, in a lot of places in the Bible, actually, that the kingdom is here now in the world. And heaven isn't our reality just yet. I mean, I, 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 you don't really have to step out very far into the world to experience that it's not heaven. Not yet. And so the kingdom of heaven doesn't refer to the place heaven. Another thing that the kingdom is not, it's, is, it's not a personal, inner, spiritual experience. That idea, I think, we got from uh, a passage in Luke 17. 
Um, in verse 20, it says, Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, the NIV, there, the, every once in a while, there's a, a language revision of a Bible translation, and the NIV went through one in 1984. It went through one again in 2011. Um, prior to the 2011 revision of the NIV, the NIV used to say, the kingdom of God is within you. And I think the reason they revised that is that's confusing. Because that's not really what the Greek says. I think the kingdom of God is in your midst, Gets, gets, hits closer to what it is. The kingdom of God is with you, is, I mean, you're part of it, but it's not inside you. And especially it's not inside you individually. That's the part I think that we sometimes can miss in translation is uh, our, our language, the, the word you can be singular or plural. Um, and it, and it's, sometimes we don't know when, we, when the Bible says you, we don't know which one it is. Does Jesus mean that the kingdom is within you individually or does it mean that it's, it, it, it's within all of us? It's within you as a group. And, and in this instance, it's plural. Um, I like to think of it, uh, I didn't used to think of it this way because I, I didn't talk like this, but I moved to Illinois and people started using this word y'all um, that I hadn't really heard before. Um, but I think I've actually come to, to think it's kind of beautiful because it's a plural you. And, and like, I, I used to think the English language didn't have a plural you, but then I moved to Illinois, and I, lo and behold, it does. It's y'all, right? And so the, the kingdom of God is in y'all's midst, right? It's not just in you, it's in y'all. It's in us. It's, it's, it's here in the people of God, um, collectively, as, as a group. Um, and, and so it's not this personal spiritual experience, you know, this personal relationship with Jesus, that's valuable, that exists, that's a thing. But the kingdom of God is not just a personal relationship with Jesus. The kingdom of God involves y'all. And God's kingdom is, is also, and I think this is a really big one, it's also not political. Jesus never tried to fix or change the governments of his time. He had no interest in leading a revolution to replace the government in Rome, or, or the government in Jerusalem with some sort of Jesus government. That's not what he was about. Um, in John 18, 36, Jesus is talking to Pilate just before his crucifixion. And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is from another place. And our experience is with Democracy. But that's not how kingdoms work. In a kingdom, the citizens don't get to decide who's going to be the leader. In a kingdom, the citizens don't get to decide what the laws are going to be. The king decides. You don't get a crown for joining this kingdom. You give up your crown. You lay it at the feet of Jesus when you accept him as your king, your lord, your master, the person in charge of you and your life. So this kingdom doesn't look like any other kingdom we've seen on earth. It's not like Rome. It's not like Israel either. And it's not like the United States. It's not liberal. It's not conservative. It's not political. It's also not a social justice experiment. It's not focused on making society a better place. I mean, it is kind of, but that's not the point. 
If we live for the kingdom, I do think it makes the world a better place, but the point of the kingdom isn't to make the world a better place. A lot of well-meaning Christians uh, and churches invest in, in causes around the world uh, to, fit, to feed people, to free people, to help improve uh, people's quality of life. And listen, those are good. Don't hear me say that that's, that's bad, that we shouldn't do those things. We should do those things. We should care for people. Jesus cared for people. We should care for people. Those are good things. But those aren't the sum total of the kingdom of God. If Jesus isn't at the center, it's definitely not the kingdom of God. It might be like the Red Cross, and that's great, but it's not the kingdom of God if it doesn't have Jesus as the king. If it's just making sure people have food, that's good, but it's not the kingdom if Jesus isn't at the center. And the last one, I think, is the one that's become the most confusing to us. Even the church is not the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is bigger than the church. Now, the church is called to tell the world about God's kingdom. We're called to show the world what it looks like to live out the kingdom, but not all churches do that very well. The church is is supposed to be kingdom people, but not every church is living out the kingdom reality. So if you were hurt in a church, maybe even hurt in this church, I am sorry. I really am. I I really wish that, that people didn't get hurt and deeply wounded in churches. Churches are filled with broken and sinful people, and and that just happens sometimes. And I'm not excusing it, but I'm just saying, if if you were hurt in a church, I am sorry, but I want you to know that the church is not the kingdom of God. If you were hurt in a church, I'm sorry, but don't give up on God's kingdom because you got hurt in a church. The kingdom of God is bigger than the church. And when the church is doing it right, they will be a kingdom people, showing and telling the world what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. But no church perfectly represents the kingdom of heaven. And that makes sense, I guess, when you think about it, right? No church perfectly represents this kingdom that Jesus brought. We're aspiring to live in the kingdom. We're aspiring to be people of the kingdom. But to say that the church is the kingdom of God begs a whole list of questions. Which version of the church is the kingdom of God? Which denomination of the church is the kingdom of God? This church does it this way. This church does it this way. Which, which one's the right way in the kingdom of God? And the answer is no one church is the kingdom of God. The church is God's people living as citizens of the kingdom of God. So if those things are not the kingdom of God, I want to talk about what, what is the kingdom of God. And I think it can be very, relatively simple, just, just to, to, to boil it down, in, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the term kingdom is understood as the rule and the reign of a king. And that makes sense. A kingdom is defined by the king, by the person who, who, who rules it. And, and this kingdom is both already here, and also not here yet. That's why Luke can write that the kingdom is in your midst. It's here. It's all around us. But then Matthew can write that when we pray, we should ask God, thy kingdom come. Right? Ask God, bring your kingdom. And so Luke can say, it's already here, but then Matthew can say, well, you should definitely need to ask God to, to, to make his kingdom come, come here now. A, a new kingdom arrived when Jesus stepped on the scene, but it won't be fully here until Jesus comes back. 
So the kingdom of of God is the reign of Jesus as king in our lives. The reign of Jesus as king in our world, both now, right now, and not yet. So it's not only something that's off in the future, but it's also not only something that is already here. It's both. It's here now, but not yet here fully. This kingdom, it's, it's the fulfillment of God's promises throughout the Bible to, to transform and restore a world that's broken by sin. It already started, but there's some event that's coming in the future. There's an event that's coming that, that will bring it in full, that will complete the process. And we, the church, God's people, we are called to live as part of this kingdom right now while we wait for God's kingdom to come to the rest of the world for good forever. And so the challenge is, how do we live for the kingdom of God when the kingdom of God isn't fully here? It can be hard to see. Not everyone is living for this kingdom. How do we live for a kingdom that is hard to see, that isn't here in full, that, that sometimes we wonder, is it even here at all? What does it look like to to be a kingdom people? And I think to answer that, we need to hear some stories. Um, Jesus, uh, anytime Jesus talked about the kingdom, almost all the time when Jesus talked about the kingdom, he used parables. He used stories uh, to to explain to us what kingdom is like. Um, And and he talks about the kingdom in parables uh, in Matthew chapter 13 more than any other place in the Bible. And so that's where we're going to camp out for a little while uh, this morning. And so he starts with the parable of the sower. Um, if you've attended church, you're probably familiar with the parable of the sower. A farmer sows seed. There's four different kinds of soil. Uh, and the seed uh, doesn't take deep root in, in, in three of the kinds of soil. In the fourth kind, in the good soil, it can take deep root and grow. That's how Jesus kind of starts this process about people being receptive to the message of the kingdom of God. And then after that parable, and after he explains that parable, he tells six more about what the kingdom of God is like. And we're going to look at some of those. Um, So the first one we're going to look at today starts in in verse 24 in Matthew 13. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't we sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first, collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. So God has planted his kingdom in the world. But that doesn't mean that everything is suddenly okay. There's still an enemy. And that enemy is working against God to try and ruin God's kingdom. And after Jesus left the crowd, he told this parable to a crowd of people. After he left the crowd and he was with just his disciples, his disciples asked him to explain this parable. And he did. Um, He he told them what it meant uh, in verse 37. We're going to jump ahead. Jesus said, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. 
The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. You like that word play? They'll weed it out. I love that. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So right here in this story, the kingdom is now. There's wheat growing. Uh, The kingdom has been planted, but not yet. There's still something that's going to happen to kind of finish it, right? And, and, And bring it to completion. And, and it may sound simple, but the main idea of this story, we can, we can really like dissect and get into this story really deeply, but the main idea of this story is that we need to be wheat, not weeds. I mean, that's it. That's, that's the simple part of Jesus' story here. Our job is to grow into wheat. No matter how many weeds surround us, our, it's not our job to pull the weeds. I mean, that's pretty clear in this story. We're like, oh man, we need to, we need to get, rid, get rid of these weeds. Well, actually, no. It's not our job to pull the weeds. Um, that happens during the harvest, which is not yet. And Jesus seems pretty clear that it's angels who are going to do that anyway, not us. Um, and so we don't have to worry about that. And I don't know about you, but that's hard for me. It's hard for me to look all around me and, and see a bunch of weeds and not be worried about them. You know, I, 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 some of, I, I think if on my better days... I want to change the weeds into wheat. I, I'm worried that they're, that they're weeds and they need to be wheat. Um, and, and so, I, you know, those are my better motive days. On my worst days, I definitely want to pull the weeds. You know, I want them out of here. I want to get rid of them so that I have a little more space to grow and be healthy. Um, but, but neither of those things, based on this story, is what I'm called to do. I'm called to grow. I'm called to grow into wheat, to, to be healthy and honestly, to not really worry about the things that are going on around me, the weeds that are growing up around me, God will take care of that. God will sort it out in the end. It's kind of the message of this story, right? So kingdom living takes patience. It takes trust because there's an enemy farmer. There's an enemy farmer who, who mimics God's planting work to try and poison the kingdom by disrupting the good seeds, by, by planting in bad seeds, weed seeds. And, and living in the kingdom means being wheat in a field that's filled with weeds. And that's hard. It's hard to be wheat in a field that's filled with weeds, but that's what we're called to do. We're called to grow. And so back up in verse 31, Jesus tells two more kingdom stories. These ones are, these are, are shorter, they're quick. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows up, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. And so using the, the smallest known seed as a metaphor for the kingdom is kind of surprising. Um, Israel always believed throughout the, 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 the Old Testament, throughout their history, that when God's kingdom was established on earth, it would be huge. It would be this great uh, political government 
kingdom. It would be a nation the way Israel uh, was, was supposed to be uh, in the Old Testament. Um, it would be revolutionary change, overthrowing oppressive leaders and toppling corrupt governments and shining like the sun, like a beacon of light to the entire world. It would be this nation, this amazing place. And if we're honest, I think we kind of expect that too. We want God's kingdom to fix the world that we live in. And when it doesn't, when it doesn't do it right away, it's frustrating. It's disappointing that God's kingdom isn't fixing everything right now. Why isn't it fixing everything? We don't want something that seems small and insignificant, something like a mustard seed or like a little bit of yeast. But Jesus insists that that's how the kingdom works, that the kingdom is here already. It's working and growing behind the scenes. It's hidden. Kind of secret. And what might not look like much right now, Jesus says it'll grow. It'll grow into this huge tree. It will fulfill all of God's promises in the end. All those promises God made throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament uh, that Israel was hoping for, this kingdom will fulfill those promises, just not the way you thought. It's going to work its way through the whole world. It's going to change the whole world, but it's going to do it from the inside out. Not from the top down. It's it's a grassroots movement. It's a movement of wheat growing among the weeds. God's kingdom seems smaller than we expected. A lot of times when we look around, we thought, man, I thought it was going to be bigger than this. I thought it was going to have more impact than this. But Jesus promises that it's more effective than we could ever imagine if we just trust him. It It doesn't just change governments. It changes us. And that's the point. God's kingdom is here to change us, to change his people. Not just to to give us a better place to live in for a while, but to make us the kind of people who will make the better place um, in the world. And in verse 44, Jesus tells two more kingdom stories. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went out and sold all he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. And so uh, in the first century, treasures were hidden in fields sometimes because there really weren't banks for people to keep their their valuables. And uh, if an army raided an area and and a homeowner didn't survive, a landowner didn't survive, if he had buried a treasure in his field, no one would know. Uh, the treasure would just be there. It would be forgotten, unclaimed, uh, buried in a field. And so the man in Jesus' story wasn't looking for treasure. He was, we assume, working the field. Uh, and, but when he found it, when he found this treasure, he recognized its value right away. He knew right away, this is big. This is something important. Um, and so he decided it was worth more than anything he already owned. It was worth more than everything he already owned. Uh, and so he sold it all uh, so he could buy the field. So, so, so that the treasure could be his. So he could then own the field and then be able to claim the treasure. And the merchant is different. The merchant didn't find treasure by accident. Um, he, he, was, he was looking for pearls. Uh, he was searching. And when he found what he was looking for, he also recognized how valuable it was and he sold everything that he had to get it. So both of these, both these guys in the story recognize the value, which is the point. They recognize the value of the kingdom and are willing to sacrifice everything they have in order to get it, whether they found it by accident or whether they found it by searching. 
Um, which, honestly, I, I know people uh, who fit into both those categories, right? And I, I'm sure you do too. People who kind of stumble into the kingdom. They weren't really looking for it, but it found them. And people who were searching their whole lives, and they found it and recognized its value. That's, that both of those are true. That could be, either one could be your story. Um, and, and the point is to recognize the value when you find it. Later in Matthew's gospel, there's this story where Jesus meets a a rich young ruler and he refuses to give up what he has to follow Jesus. Um, He doesn't see the value of the treasure in front of him. It doesn't seem like it's worth more than than everything he already has. And so he decides to just to keep what he has um, instead of uh, gaining the kingdom. And and in that story, uh, right after that story, Jesus tells his disciples uh, it's very difficult. It's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because it's not always easy to see how valuable the kingdom is. You know, a mustard seed doesn't seem that valuable. Just a little bit of yeast, it doesn't seem that valuable. It's an undercover kingdom. At least the version that we have right now seems kind of undercover, behind the scenes. It's not fully here in a big, obvious way. The weeds are still growing. The kingdom seems small. The, The change is so slow sometimes that it's hard to see how valuable it is. It's hard to see what it's going to become. But I want to share one more story with you. One more parable. I want to jump to Matthew 18 to share it. And this is, for me anyway, this is probably the hardest one uh, about, you know, of all the stories where Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. So Matthew 18, in verse 23, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Um, Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged. They went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Whoa. So the amount that the first servant owed was insane. This, you know, 10,000 bags of gold, 10,000 talents. I'm not going to do the, like, dollar-for-dollar dollar money exchange. I'm just going to say it was billions of dollars with a B. He owed billions of dollars. He obviously can't pay back such a huge debt. That's, I don't, who, how did this guy incur such a huge, by the way, how in the world do you find yourself in a position where you owe billions of dollars? Anyway, he owed a lot of money. And, and he can't pay it back, so he and his family face the consequences. And like the, the part where he's like, just be patient, I'll pay it back. No, you won't. 
billions of dollars, you liar. And the, so the king, the king has compassion, though, and the king realizes that he's never going to pay this back. You know, I'm gonna, and the king does something amazing. It's kind of like in the prodigal son, right? Something unexpected where the king lets him off the hook. More than that, the king cancels his debt, which means that the, the, you know, it doesn't just... Economy 101, it doesn't just poof into the air. It has to be paid by someone. So the king takes the debt on himself, right? The king takes the financial loss to, you know, to his portfolio of the billions of dollars that was owed to him. He, just, he, he scratches it off the books and suddenly he's worth billions less, right? He takes the loss on himself. Um, and so he's moved to compassion. He cancels the debt. And then the second servant in the story owes uh, thousands of dollars. It's not nothing. I've, I've heard this story preached before where it's like one guy owed a lot, the other guy owed like 10 bucks. It's not that. It's, it's not an insignificant amount. It's thousands of dollars, maybe even in, in you know, 10,000, 15, something like that. So it's not like totally insignificant, but it is something that could be paid back, um, you know, with hard work, with time, uh, something like that. He, he owes thousands of dollars uh, to the one who had that huge debt, that billion dollar debt forgiven. But instead of showing the same forgiveness that the king gave him, he, he chokes the guy and throws him in jail. And when the king finds out, he's mad uh, because he expected his servant uh, to be changed by this act of grace, right? To show others the same mercy, the same grace that he was shown. But since he refuses, the king gives him the punishment he deserved in the first place. He reinstates the punishment. And this one's hard for Jesus. This is what the kingdom is like. This is hard, but it's not that confusing. A person who has experienced the mercy and grace of God will be transformed into a follower of Jesus. They will become part of God's kingdom. And being part of God's kingdom means seeing other people the way God sees them. And even further than that, it means treating other people the way God treats them. No matter how much they sin, no matter how badly they hurt us, no matter how much they owe us, experiencing the kingdom changes us. It transforms us to be like our king, to see people and treat people the way our king sees people and treats people. Namely, forgiving them. And so this idea of a magic kingdom, it's a good idea. It shows that there's a desire inside each of us for a place for a time, for an environment where all of our hopes and all of our dreams will come true. A place where evil is banished and life is fun and creative and beautiful. And as great as Disney's Magic Kingdom is, we can see that it's an illusion. We can see that it's, it's an escape for a little while. We can see that it's not permanent for us. But, but unlike the Magic Kingdom, our kingdom hope doesn't come from the magic inside of us. Our kingdom hope comes from a king. A king who defeated our enemy. A king who promised to make all things new. And we are called to be a kingdom people. People who seek God's kingdom, God's way. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. A, a community of kingdom workers committed to the reality of the kingdom that's hidden in the world right now. A, a group of people who share the good news of the kingdom. A group of people who live out the commands of the king. The kingdom of heaven is God's reign in the world. And the church is God's people in the world. 
And God will bring about his kingdom fully when the time is right. That's not our job. It's not our job to bring God's kingdom here today. God will do that when he decides it's time. Our job is to live in the reality of the kingdom that's here right now. Patiently growing like wheat. Being willing to sacrifice what the world views as valuable when we see how valuable the kingdom is. And relying on God to make us effective as we treat others the way God has treated us. Let's pray. Father, this stuff about your kingdom, it's, it's difficult for us to, to get our minds around because it's so different. It's so different from the way we're used to living. It's so different from the idea of, of making sure that people give us what they owe us. This idea of making sure that, that we, we, have to, we have to bring change to the government, that we have to uh, do all these things to make the world a better place. And, and Father, I just pray for perspective. I pray that you will help us to, to recenter, to reorient our lives around your kingdom. Around what your kingdom really is, not what we want it to be. Father, I pray more than anything that we would make you our king and everything that goes along with that, that you would be our Lord, that you would be our master, that we would follow where you lead. Father, thank you for your promises. Thank you that your kingdom's going to come fully someday. I just pray that we can see enough of it right now that we can trust you and follow you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. got a teacher, a healer, a visionary, a prophet, a savior who was falsely accused and executed, a savior who honestly seemed kind of weak if, if they could just kill him on a cross, until three days later, there he was again, walking around and talking about the kingdom again in Acts chapter 1, just more kingdom talk before Jesus was on the cross and after, it was all kingdom because Jesus wasn't the Messiah we expected, but he is the king that we needed. He took our sins once and for all, he buried them forever, and then he invited us into his kingdom. And that's what we remember when we take communion every week. It's not just that Jesus died for our sins, but even though that's huge. It's not just that, that he conquered death through the resurrection, even though that's also huge, but also that he invites us to join him in a kingdom that will eventually and finally make everything right again. So when the tray passes by with communion this morning, take a set of cups and hold on to them uh, until we can take communion together as a kingdom people. His body given for us. His blood poured out for our sins. The kingdom, the reign of Jesus to fulfill God's promise to restore a world broken by sin, the kingdom is here. And we're called to live for that kingdom above any other. This is the church, a people who live as citizens of God's kingdom. So next week, Steve uh, will be back. Um, you know, Splash Cove, Steve's got to be back. So Steve will be back. Uh, he's going to talk a little bit more about what it means to be the church. Um, for this morning, why don't we stand and sing one last song as we're dismissed. So oh.